I want to continue this morning in our series of lessons on coming together as the church. We have been looking at lessons that help us to understand the importance of this, what we sometimes think is a very simple concept, and it is. But the events of the day have at least led me to to examine this closely and to see if we are doing our best uh, in coming together. And we consider some of these things that maybe we overlook as well. What is, it, what is the church? What, what, what does it mean to come together? Why is it so important that each church stands independent of each other? And we talked about in a previous lesson as well, God's people in exile. How we're not always in the position or the the situation that we want to be as, as it comes to our worship to God. And it's not unprecedented that God's people are scattered and, and moved, displaced. But we looked last week that uh, amidst all that and all that we face uh, in this world, we're still not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as best we can. Under whatever circumstances that, that befall us, Scripture is clear that we, that we are to come together on the first day of the week. And so I, I want to continue in our lessons this morning in talking about the idea of the remnant and how it is that through all this, no matter what, God is faithful and God tells us that there will always be a remnant that will remain. So we can decide for ourselves, do we want to be uh, those who will, will miss out, uh, and, and that's a large number, as, as Devin mentioned this morning as we're gathered around the table, there's, there's few of us in terms of those in the world who come together on the first day of the week compared to those who don't. So the, the, the decision is ours. Do we want to be amongst those who are in, in the majority of those who are in going through that wide gate, as our Lord tells us about? Or do we want to be those in the remnant? Those who are, are loyal and faithful to God and will pass through that narrow gate? Which ones do we want to be a part of? So this morning I want to look at this idea about the remnant and how they're will always be a remnant. They'll always be faithful people as long as the earth still turns. They'll always be faithful people, faithful children to God. So I want to start this morning by looking at uh, uh, an example from old. Look with me in 1 Kings chapter 19. Go with me there, 1 Kings chapter 19. I want to remind us about this this story here about Elijah. Elijah was a prophet. He prophesied during uh, the time of, uh, amongst other kings, King Ahab in Israel. And King Ahab was quite a wicked man. And he had several run-ins with Elijah. And because of this, Elijah, we see him in a state of mind where he is, is somewhat depressed. And we'll talk about that here in just a moment. But the occasion here in, in chapter 19 of 1 Kings is that, that Elijah has just come from this showdown with the, with the prophets of Baal. 
And he's been uh, victorious in that, and he's put to death the prophets there in that showdown. And he comes up against Jezebel, and Jezebel is the wife of Ahab, and she's a wicked woman. And here in chapter 19, verse 1, it says, Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and that is to put to death the, these, these idolatrous um, prophets of whom she ascribed. That was her religion. She was idolatrous, along with Ahab as well. But Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. What she's saying is, I'll be put to death too if I don't put you to death by this time tomorrow. Now this, there's the threat. There's the threat that comes to, to Elijah. And, and we see his state of mind in this. And he says, um, verse 3, and, I, and he was afraid and arose and ran uh, for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. And he goes on to talk about how he, he leaves his servant there. And, and, and he goes on uh, by himself. And he lays down to sleep and, and he wakes up to an angel um, arousing him from his sleep and giving him food and water to drink. And then verse 8, he says, So he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. And when he's there, he's going to have this, this interlude here with God. It says in verse 9, And he came there into a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I love the interaction of, in this case, it says the word of the Lord came to him. We also have angels coming to him in various states. So this is God speaking to him in various ways. It says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, verse 10, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thy altars, and killed thy prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek to, my life to take it away. You see the very low point where Elijah is. He says that they, they have torn down the altars, killed your prophets, and now they want to kill me. And if you look back up there in verse 4, it says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than, thy fathers, than my fathers. Elijah's at a very low place. And he thinks that he is the last one left that's faithful to God. Have we ever felt that way? You ever had that lonely feeling? Where you feel like you're the only one left that's being faithful to God? I certainly don't know that we could come down to one person, but we can certainly feel very lonely and very isolated when it comes to serving God. When it comes to our life as a Christian, we can feel this way. Elijah felt like he was the only one left. But he has here this interlude with God. Verse 11 now. And so God says to him, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And I know we're probably all familiar with this, with this story, but isn't, isn't it a wonderful one? 
that God is going to show him, he's going to give him a little lesson right here. So there's going to be wind, there's going to be earthquake, there's going to be fire. The demonstration of God's might and his power. It says, Behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking them into pieces and the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. Verse 13, And it came about when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in a mantle and went out and stood to the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord. The God of hosts, the sons of Israel, have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine altars, and killed thy prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. It's not a misprint. He said the exact same thing again. But go back to that wind, fire, earthquake, and we see a demonstration of God's power and his might. that He's able to do these things, because it says the, the Lord was passing by. But when it comes down to it, the voice that, that speaks to him is that still, small voice. And you can describe all sorts of things that you might dig out the meaning of that and see what it means and try to parallel all these things. And you can read a, a half dozen commentaries and you'll get a half dozen different opinions. But what we can take away from that is the, the idea that God's voice was not in the fire or the earthquake or the wind, his voice was in that small voice. The, the New American Standard renders that as a gentle blowing. I like the older, some of the older translations that says that still small voice. That's a little closer to the, what the Hebrew actually says. And so we can see that God was in those three things, but his voice was in the fourth thing. And again, he asks Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah hasn't quite caught on because he gives him the same answer. He's still in that same state of mind that he's the only one left. So listen to what God tells him after that. Verse 15. It says, The Lord said to him, Go, return your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael, king over Aram, that is Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, um, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. God is talking about a judgment against wicked people. And he's setting this up so that there's going to be a judgment that comes, and if this person misses them, the next one will get them. But look what he says there in verse 18. It says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that not, have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. See, God's going to leave that remnant. 7,000. Is, is it an actual number? Again, you can debate that. But it's a, a solid number. It's a real number. It's a number of people who are going to remain faithful to God. 
It's among those that it's among those who have not bowed down to idolatry, those who are remaining faithful to God. So while Elijah thinks he's the only one left, and he thinks that Jezebel is going to come and kill him, God comes to him in that small voice. And I love the fact that he asks, "What are you doing here, Elijah? Go back to Israel." Go back to where you should be and do the things that I'm going to tell you to do because I'm going to preserve for myself a remnant. There's going to be a faithful number of people left when this judgment comes down. What does it mean to us? Paul picks up on this. Look with me in Romans chapter 11. Paul picks up on this and uses it to let us know that there's always going to be a remnant. And Paul says there's a remnant right now. In Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, he says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? This is a, useful, or a common way that Paul writes. He asks these rhetorical questions and then answers his own question. God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So when he asked the question, Israel has not been rejected. God has not rejected his own people. He says, I too am an Israelite. I come from the, from, the, from, the, from the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God hasn't turned his back on the, those who are faithful to him. Now, in the, in the midst of all of this, God, Paul is making the argument that, that it is the, through the Israelites, through the Jews, salvation would come. And that is through Jesus Christ. Jesus was a Jew. But then it was going to be uh, available to all peoples, to the Gentiles. And he talk, goes on to talk about how the grafting in of that all happens. But for our purposes in, in understanding what he's saying here, he calls on this, this, this instance that we just looked at here with Elijah, the middle of verse 2, he says, Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Paul helps us to understand that this, this pleading that Elijah had against those who were, who were turning their backs on God amongst his own people. Verse 3, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and have torn down thy altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. He's quoting what Elijah said to God. Verse 4, but what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Israel hasn't been rejected, and the idea of, remember Elijah? Remember what he was going through? All the prophets are dead, and I alone am left. And God's response was him was, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In verse 5, he says, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So here's the, here's the connection. Again, Devin talked about this morning, types and antitypes. Looking back in history and then seeing... Uh, what that was there, and then making that application now. 
Paul says in the same way, there, there is a, at the present time, right now, there's a remnant. And the idea is it's not those who have descended from Abraham by bloodline. It's those who have, have descended from Abraham through righteousness, who believing in God. Those who believe in God. And Paul writes, Abraham believed in God and it was reckoned to him. It was counted to him as righteousness. Those are the sons of God. Those are the children of God. That's the remnant. So we might say that we are the remnant. As long as we are being faithful to God. As long as we are amongst those who have not bowed the knee to Baal. As long as we are among those who have not kissed him, as, as it was said there in 1 Kings. The idea, not given over to idolatry, not given over to worldliness, not come out of, uh, of the Lord's church, but rather are maintaining our faith. We're of the remnant. And we're, we're of that small number that remain faithful on the earth. I want to make this one more point. We're going to go back to Isaiah now to make this point. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 10. So we, we, we see the idea uh, about the remnant. That, that um, Isaiah here is telling his audience that you better repent or... God is going to bring judgment upon you. And we know that happened. We know that Israel and Judah were, were carried away into captivity. And there was a time there that they were away, but God was gracious in, in letting them come back. And guess who it was that would come back? It's the remnant. It's the remnant that would come back. In Isaiah 10, verse 20, it says, Now it will come about in that day that the remnant of Israel... And those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. So he is telling them that you've got to learn to rely on God. Trust in Him. There's a time coming that's, that's going to be awful. People are going to be killed and people are going to be kidnapped and taken away and, and moved into other lands and their, their wealth is going to be taken from them and, and people are going to die. But the lesson here is that you've got to rely on God. You've got to rely on God to, to carry you through this. Your faith in God will, will bring you through. And he says there that, that many are going to be destroyed, that only a few are going to be left. Look there in verse 21. It says, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. And verse 23 says, for a complete destruction, one that is decreed the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. So even though... Israel as a nation, Judah as a nation, is going to be taken into captivity. And, and that judgment that's coming on them is overflowing with righteousness. What does that mean? It means that they deserve it. Because God is righteous, 
and they're not. And they are not practicing righteousness as a nation. And God's going to punish them for it. And it says, though your, your people be like the sand of the sea, there's a lot of people in Israel, there's only a few that are going to return. There's only a few that are going to survive. That's the remnant that will return. Complete destruction is decreed of the Lord. But only a few will remain. But there's always hope. Look over in chapter 11 of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. God always provides hope. He always provides that way of escape. And in this great um, persecution that's coming, when Israel's going to be wiped out, there still is hope. And there's hope that's far-reaching as well. We see the immediate context and we see the overtones of that is which is to come. So we see the overtones of a Savior that will gather together those that are scattered. In chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and the branch from his roots will bear fruit. Bible scholars know that that's a reference to Jesus. Jesus came from the line of Jesse. So that's a reference to that line, which it will come, that bloodline. Verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord and will not judge by what his eyes see nor make decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. That's overtones of Jesus, isn't it? That's prophecy of Jesus coming. Strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's judgment. He's talking about the word of God. And the judgments that are there, there, found therein. Come down to verse 10. It says, Then it will come in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea, he will, he will lift up a standard for the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel and will, gather from, and will gather dispersed of Judah and from the four corners of the earth. See, there's coming a time when the Savior is going to call the remnant, is going to gather them together. And what does that mean? It means... As we mentioned in the past, when Peter writes his first letter, he talks to those who are, who are dispersed throughout those various regions in the Roman Empire. He's talking to those who have been dispersed. He's talking to that remnant, those who are remaining faithful to God. So this points to that, a time when the Savior will be lifted up. Verse 12 there says that he will lift up a standard for the nations. The idea of calling all nations to himself. Jesus said that. By lifting me up, I call all nations to myself. He's the one that's going to do that. He is the savior of the remnant to those who are scattered. And look what it says here in verse 16. It says, And there will be a highway from Assyria 
and for the, for the remnant of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel in the day that they came up out of the land of Egypt. And the idea there is, is physical, or, 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 the, or the words being used there are physical, but the idea there is spiritual. It says there a highway will be, will be provided. What does that mean? That mean that, that's a way for people to, to come back, the physical way for them to come back. But what's being used here is the idea of the spiritual way in which we can return. In John 14 and verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes through the Father except through me. So we see the connection there. The way in which we come back, the way in which the remnant returns is through Jesus Christ. That's the application that comes down to us. Travis read for us part of this in 1 Peter 5. It says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 6, that he may exalt you in the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I want us to read this in context of the idea of feeling the way Elijah did, feeling lonely and isolated, in that we're the only ones left that are faithful to God. Do we have those feelings? Do we feel like Elijah did? If we do, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he will exalt you in the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. You have sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's still out there. The devil is still out there. He's still looking for someone to devour. But look what it says in verse 9. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. The devil's out there looking to pull us back. Pull us back into the world. But what what does Peter say here? Resist him, firm in your faith. Knowing what? That brethren everywhere are suffering. Brethren everywhere are experiencing the same kind of things that you are. Elijah, what are you doing here? Well, I've, I'm alone. They've, they've killed the prophets. They've torn down your altars. And now they're seeking my life. Verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of grace who called you to his eternal, his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Elijah, there's still 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal, have not kissed him. So after you have suffered for a little while, God will perfect you. He'll strengthen you. He will establish you because it's his kingdom. It's his dominion forever and ever. We're part of that remnant. Churches may come and go. There's nothing that says that this church will survive forever. 
There might be another church that springs up somewhere else. This church may, may last till the Lord comes. I hope it does. Churches will come and go, but the Lord's church abides forever. And the Lord's church is that remnant. The Lord's church will be here until he returns to take us home. If churches around us crumble, so be it. But let's make sure that we're in the remnant. Let's make sure that we're holding fast what's been entrusted to us. Holding on to the word of God, teaching and preaching, being faithful. Let's make sure that we're part of that, still a part of God's kingdom. He calls all peoples to himself through Jesus Christ. And there is that, in all of this, that still small voice of God calling. God wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire. You look at it in, in terms of this. He's done all that. He's created all things. He's led his people out of bondage in Egypt and into the promised land. And he's, he gave them all that he promised that he would give them. The, the, the land, the nation. And now he's given us the Messiah. He's given us Jesus Christ. Through Abraham, all, through his seed, all nations will be blessed, remember? And all nations are blessed in Jesus Christ. So he's given us all that. All those miraculous, wonderful things have been accomplished and done. And what's left? There's that still small voice that still calls. Calls us through his word. Calls us through Jesus Christ. Him crucified. Paul says that so beautifully and so simply. I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the voice that still calls. That's the voice that adds to the remnant. Let's make sure that we're part of that remnant. Let's make sure that we're remaining faithful to God. That we have not bowed that knee to idolatry. Let's make sure we're living according to God's plan for us as his children.